If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 718. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. Get one or 20 of my on-demand classes there. If you're getting this before October 14th, you can still enroll in my Causes of the Civil War live class, which begins in November, six weeks. You'll have me live four times in that time period, plus some on-demand content. So it's going to be a fantastic class. Enrollment is limited, and it does end October 14th. There is a coupon for it. If you use Causes, you get $200 off the retail price. It's a bargain even at the retail price, but you're going to get $200 off uh, beyond that if you use that coupon code CAUSES. But again, enrollment closes October 14th. You can also support the show by clicking on that support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can throw a few, a few pennies my way or click on the heart under this video, the super thanks button. If you're watching on YouTube, you can throw a few pennies my way that way or at anchor.fm. You can subscribe there. Click on the shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. But of course, as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you love it. Give it that five-star review. Leave a text review. That also helps. And of course, if you're at YouTube, comment on it. It helps the algorithm. gets more people seeing the content. It's, it's fantastic. So all you can do to help, I appreciate. You Share it around on social media. Send me those show requests. I do want to see what you want to hear. And this is a listener-generated episode. Not, not one particular listener, but several different listeners have sent me information about this. So I want to talk about it today. And it's it has to do with the proposal by the committee that Congress created to tear down or rename or uh, change, whatever you want to say, Confederate imagery on U.S. military installations or in the U.S. military. And so... This has led to a whole host of just stupid ideas. And the, the worst of the worst is the final proposal to tear down the Confederate monument in Arlington Cemetery. Now, this is absolutely outrageous. Uh, I mean, it's outrageous. There's, there's no way to describe it. The man who sculpted the monument was Jewish. He was a Jewish Confederate. So, I mean, I'm surprised the Jewish community is not up in arms over this, that uh, we have uh, anti-Semitism at work here because we're tearing down this monument sculpted by an American Jewish man, a Southern American Jewish man who did fight for the Confederacy, by the way, by the way, who his name is Moses Ezekiel, and he's buried there. This is basically his tombstone. There are, uh, there are other Confederates buried right in this section of Arlington Cemetery, and it was designed to be a monument of reconciliation and healing. There's no other way to describe it. William McKinley, who was a Union veteran, wanted it. Now, he was not president 
when it was finally finished and unveiled, that would be Woodrow Wilson. But Wilson made clear, even in the dedication speech, that this was a monument to reconciliation. It was a monument to healing. And you started seeing this throughout the United States. Uh, the same dopes that are advocating taking down this monument are now advocating that uh, the monument at Gettysburg to the Virginians, which has Lee on top of the monument, and then a series of soldiers under that, should be uh, only be restored if there's, if there's uh, some type of contextualization involved in the monument, some type of interpretation. Well, that would actually fly in the face of the original charge, which said that was not to be part of the monument. There could be no praise or blame in the monument itself. So, if you contextualize it, you're actually violating the original charge, as you would be doing if you took down this Confederate monument. The idea is to take off all the bronze plaques, to take off all the sculptures on this monument at Arlington, and just leave this piece of granite sitting on the ground. You see, for years, presidents actually placed a wreath at the Confederate monument. This was a pure symbol of reconciliation, of putting behind us the wounds of the war and moving together as a unified people, whatever that means, in pursuit of the American empire. And Southerners willingly got on board. Uh, in fact, Southerners in larger numbers than any other group in America filled out the ranks of the American military. And they willingly did so. This is, by, this is by volunteering for the military, not just through the draft, which, of course, we saw a lot of in World War I and World War II, and then, of course, the Vietnam War, but in volunteer numbers. Southerners volunteer for the military in larger numbers than any other group of Americans. So as this is happening, right, as we're seeing these monuments come down, as we're seeing all this reinterpretation, as we're seeing all these things dedicated to people that were considered not just Southern heroes, but American heroes. Thomas Stonewall Jackson, Robert E. Lee. Uh, you could say that Jefferson Davis was always a controversial figure, but the military figures of the war, of the South, were always recognized as being important Americans, and military men, North and South, admired them. Right? Thomas Jackson is still studied at West Point, his Shenandoah Valley campaign, it's still studied there. Why? Because it was genius. Well, when you have a monument to Jackson and you're saying this is a, this is a man that was a military genius and if we have a, a strong army and fighting force, we should be looking to these people for guidance. Of course, now you have people like Bone Kemper and others who make the case that Grant was a better general than Lee. This is, this is part of the process of reinterpreting everything. Lee was a traitor. Lee was a slaveholder, not just any slaveholder, a brutal slaveholder who whipped his slaves and had brine pouring in their wounds and he sold slaves off. I've destroyed all of that in a piece uh, in my book, Southern Scribblings, which you got to pick up. That's Robert E. Lee versus Twitter historians. But regardless, um, we have this situation where Lee is seen as the arch enemy of America, and so he has to go. And not just that, everything Confederate has to go. But what kind of impact is that going to have on the American military? Is it going to have any impact on the American military? Are we, uh, by taking down these great pillars of American masculinity and American, the American military spirit, is that going to have any kind of impact on Southerners signing up for the United States military. You see, Southerners were chomping at the bit to do it, 
and the Spanish-American War and World War I. They just wanted to be part of it, right? I mean, they had been uh, ostracized. They had been considered as you know, second-class citizens. They weren't welcome. And by the Spanish-American War, 1898, they simply want to be part of this process again. And I, and I point to an example in Columbus, Georgia. In 1865, a man named James Wilson, General James Wilson, and, uh, well, I'll just, I'll just leave it at James Wilson, was charged with taking the city of Columbus, Columbus, Georgia, which was the, one of the most important industrial centers in the South. And it had been pretty much untouched by the war. I mean, they were still producing iron implements. They were still producing uh, cloth and rubber cloth and boots, and weapons, and swords. I mean, all kinds of things, right, was still coming out of Columbus, Georgia. In fact, it was the major industrial center at that time because Richmond had already been occupied. Augusta, Georgia wasn't producing as much. And, of course, Vicksburg was already out of the way. So Columbus was it. If the South had any industrial capacity, it was Columbus, Georgia. So Wilson begins his raid uh, in, to try to take Columbus in North Alabama. Um, this is the only time in this in this period that uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest is defeated. He marches south, and he sets up a position to take Columbus. Well, the citizens of Columbus know he's coming. They do a pretty good job of setting up defensive positions, but they buckle pretty quickly, and Wilson occupies a city and then burns it. Right? James Wilson burns a good part of the city. He burns all the cotton warehouses. It was packed full of cotton because Southerners were hoping they could use that cotton as a bargaining tool to get recognition by European powers. And, of course, the blockade was doing a number on their ability to trade that cotton. So you got warehouses full of cotton. You have ammunition stores. You have the Columbus Iron Works, which is uh, an important, again, industrial uh, center for the South. Uh, you have munitions depots. You have all kinds of things, right? All kinds of things in the South, uh, in, in Columbus, I should say, that are essential to the Confederate cause. So Wilson burns all that. The CSS Jackson, which was, uh, which was uh, being constructed, it was a, an ironclad, um, there on the Chattahoochee River, is burned by the Confederates instead of drift and then burned down there. They, they float it down the river so the Union can't get it. But regardless, the city's burned and Wilson moves on. And I tell that story because in 1898, James Wilson comes back to Columbus and recruits in Columbus to get soldiers to fight in Cuba for the Spanish-American War. Here is the conqueror coming back to Columbus and asking the people he conquered to go fight with him in Cuba. And you know what happened? People signed up in droves. Why? Because Southerners were willing to, to forget. And so was James Wilson, clearly. He's here in Columbus, Georgia, right, in Columbus, trying to get people to sign up to go fight in an imperial war. And he had simply forgotten clearly, uh, or at least forgiven, that these people were against him just 30 years before this. So this is an important, uh, it's important to understand this, right? These are men who had actually faced fire from Confederates and were willing to put that aside for the United States and the greater good militarily. And Wilson, whose tactics have also been studied because he was a pioneer in what's often called blitzkrieg warfare, right? I mean, rapid strikes. He attacked, uh, it's interesting, he attacked Columbus at night through Alabama. and It's now Phoenix City, Alabama, but at one time it was Girard. Attacked at night through Girard. And then, uh, I mean, it's, it's an amazing story how all this worked out. But 
He was very good at what he did. And so was one of his uh, uh, subordinates, a man named General Upton, also very good at what he did. But here is a man like William McKinley willing to put down the partisan uh, vitriol and put it aside and say, you know what we need to do? We need to fight together. So Southerners were willing to do it, and they signed up in droves. And they did so throughout all the major American wars. It doesn't matter if we're talking about the Spanish-American War, World War I, World War II, the Korean War, Vietnam War, the War on Terror. It doesn't matter what it is. Southerners have long signed up in larger numbers than anyone else. So is this new woke military having an impact on recruiting and enrollment in the United States Army? And I think the question, the answer to that, to answer that question is definitively yes. Now, there are a couple of things that have come out in the last week or so that deal with this. One is that Revolver News. And the Revolver News piece focuses a lot of attention on this effort to take down this Confederate monument. But it also talks about Ty Sajuli. Now, I've done, I've talked about Ty Sajuli before. Um, and Ty Sajuli is one of the most despicable characters in uh, the United States military. And lo and behold, He's on the commission that's going to take down this Confederate monument. And the piece at Revolver News gets into this. And we, you know, Ty Sajuli wrote a book entitled Robert E. Lee and Me, which is just a mea culpa so he can be accepted in mainstream society, polite company, quote unquote, um, and because he's got the right opinions on Robert E. Lee. But here's what the piece at Revolver News says. Quote, it's worth stopping to, to look at who is responsible for this, and that will be taking down this Confederate monument. The spokesman of this atrocity is retired Brigadier General Ty Sigley, who served as vice chair of the commission to evaluate Confederate names and is the one quoted in every article about it. Sigley supports a visage that might charitably be described as McMullen-esque. For the past two decades, Sigley has primarily been employed as a history professor at the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. Every military academy, of course, should make its cadets study military history, History, after all, is one of the best ways to learn tactics, leadership, military organization, and grand strategy. But with Ty Sajuli on staff, West Point didn't get that kind of history. Instead, Sajuli is exactly the kind of historian you expect the modern U.S. military to cultivate and reward. His CV is a joke. Instead of specializing in hard military history, his career instead shows the same old tedious focus on race and gender topics that have made so many other academic departments a travesty. All the following are papers published or lectures delivered by Sigley. So then he lists a whole bunch of these. And let's listen to these titles, right? And I've, I've looked at this too, and I thought, yeah, I mean, this guy is just completely woke. This is what he is. He's just par for the course. He's an academic historian masquerading as a military man. Uh, name for the enemy. The U.S. Army's Confederate problem. Named for the enemy. Now, Sigley's not alone in this position. Neoconservatives say the same thing. Karl Rove. Uh, used to have a, a section on his website where he talked about books he was reading. And he loves books that call the Confederates the enemy. Named for the enemy. The U.S. Army's Confederate problem. Black Power Cadets. How African American students defeated President Nixon's Confederate monument and changed West Point. 1971 and 1976. From slavery to black power. Racial intolerance at West Point. A history of Juneteenth. A Confederate Reckoning, Recollections on Civil War Memory. A Short History of Confederate Memorialization at West Point. Educating Diversity Through History. Robert E. Lee and the Lost Cause. Educating Diversity in the Department of History. A Short History of Intolerance at West Point. 
Uncomfortable, a short history of African Americans at West Point, a history of isms at West Point, racism and sexism at the United States Military Academy, and the African American experience in World War I. That's his CV and talks and papers that he's given. He also wrote, as, and I knew this, as Beattie pointed out, he wrote this piece. Um, he's written the West Point Guide to the Civil Rights Movement, the West Point Guide to Gender and War, and the West Point Guide to Immigration History. This guy is a leftist. And you know, uh, unfortunately, PragerU, it's their, uh, what, probably their most watched video. I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't know the data. But he did a video for PragerU, was a civil war about slavery, when he says Unquivoc unequivocally, yes, the war was about slavery. It's all about slavery. It's the only thing the war was about was slavery. Now that alone should disqualify Ty Sajuli from being considered an expert on anything. Um, but it hasn't, right? He's become a darling of the left. As, uh, as this piece points out, in Sajuli's book, Robert E. Lee and Me, he uses words like racist or racism 66 times and derivatives of white supremacy 80 times, right? And so this is what he's doing. He, he is a woke professor masquerading as a military man, and he gets he's made the right contacts so he can make money and make a name for himself. And of course, he is on this commission that's charged with getting rid of these monuments. Now, the question is, does, is that having an impact on military recruitment? Uh, I follow some people on social media who are ex-soldiers, and they believe it is. The woke agenda is having an impact on people signing up for the military. Not just anti-Confederate sentiment. Not just taking down Confederate monuments or attacking Robert E. Lee or Stonewall Jackson or, uh, or you know, anyone else, right? Jeb Stewart, whoever it is, right? It's not just that. It's the entire culture of the military which has changed. It's changed. Um, and that's the real goal. It's not just taking down the Confederate monument. It's changing the entire culture to be woke in the United States military. And there was a piece uh, that, uh, so this is, this is this piece, but then there was another piece um, that I want to talk about. And it was by Phil Lee. And if you haven't gotten Phil Lee's book on Reconstruction, you're missing out. You should get his book on Reconstruction. But he believes that it is entirely within uh, the realm of possibility that this anti-Confederate movement has led to a decline in enrollment and people signing up for the military from the South. And of course, if that happens, if, they don't, if, if the United States military does not get Southerners on board, the United States military won't have enough people. They'll have a real manpower problem. Because Southerners have always signed up and joined and done their job, done their duty in, uh, in uh, the United States military. So Lee writes, a governmentally sanctioned hatred of Southerners, which he calls Confederophobia. By the way, there's a great book out by Shotwell Press, Confederophobia, by uh, Paul Graham. Uh, it's fantastic. You should get it. And uh, it, 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 I mean, it's just, it lays out all the ways that uh, this, this phobia of all things Confederate has infected. It's a disease throughout the United States. But he says this Confederophobia may be a major cause for our military's recruiting shortage, which may be as high as 40% this September fiscal year. 
Now, there was a piece, I believe it was in the Washington Post that talked about this, and they were shocked at this. You know, the, what are we doing now? Of course, the, the neoconservatives and all the statists, the centralizers, are saying what we need to do is have a compulsory military service because we can't recruit enough. Well, that would just throw off everybody into this woke military. And by the way, it's going to be not just your sons, but also your daughters, because they want to have a draft for females as well, which I've talked about on this podcast, and a lot of people didn't like what I had to say about that, because it's equal opportunity, right? Those are people that don't have daughters. But anyways, uh, Lee is exactly right here. I think that there is, and I mean, you can make a case, there's a correlation between the wokeness of the American military and this drop, this precipitous decline in people wanting to join the military. Now, I think there could be other causes, Look, it's not just the anti-Southern uh, bent, it's not just woke, but it's also the fact that there is a crisis of men in America, and too many men play video games and don't do anything else, and so why join the military? Plus, there's the idea of the empire, right? Why do we want to go out and fight and die for the American empire in the Ukraine? Or somewhere else, in North Korea, right? Or in China? Why do we want to do that? Perfectly fine defending the United States, but what is the deal there? What about the Middle East? We're in a tw- we're in a two decade plus war now, in the Middle East. The men we're asking to go join at eighteen years old weren't even born when we went into the Middle East. That's unjust. So he says, as America's most traditional region. The South has long accounted for a disproportionately large share of military recruits. The most recent public data shows that 41% come from the South, even though the region represents just 33% of America's population. On average, therefore, the Southerner has a 24% greater propensity to volunteer than does the average American. Moreover, he has a 41% greater tendency to join up than does the youth from America's other regions collectively. Now again, why does this happen? Because Southerners want... I mean, look, Southerners are generally more militaristic than the rest of the United States. It's that redneck culture, right, this, uh, that people are so disparagingly writing about now that we're going to talk about at the end of this week. That is a, a problem for all these cosmopolitan elites, but it's the thing that defends them. And they're asking these people to go defend them when they're making fun of them all the time. Well, why would they want to do that? I think there's a lot of conservatives in America asking that particular question. Why do they want to defend a bunch of dopes who make fun of them? Well, let you, you do the fighting. I actually saw somebody on social media say, that if there is a war where Ukraine is the center, let all the people who have the little Ukrainian flag on their social media account sign up first. That would be just. And of course, that's all the lefties. But no, they're not going to want the lefties to do the fighting. It has to be everybody else. So Lee says, the Confederate warrior has long been an inspiration for his descendants who gave their lives in the defense of America in later wars. During the deadliest World War II Battle of the Pacific Theater, the first American flag to fly over the Japanese fortress at Okinawa was the Confederate battle flag. It was put there by a Marine company to honor their South South Carolina commander who was cut down with a paralyzing wound during the mopping up process. It's not just that. I mean, look at... um, the Pacific Theater, or the even the European Theater, how many of those people that were fighting over there were staunch Southerners? I mean, World War I, same thing, Sergeant Alvin York, World War II, Audie Murphy. I mean, you, 
you go down the list. Eugene Sledge from from Alabama. I mean, these are conspicuous people, but how many of these people? Now, of course, there were great Northern soldiers as well. Don't get me wrong. John Bastalone, right, in the Pacific Theater. A lot of them, okay? A lot of men across the United States were cut down in that war. Heroic men, North and South. But there were a lot of great Southerners, and Southerners gave their share to earn the Medal of Honor, too. Uh, when we had a summer school for the Abbeville Institute several years ago, we had uh, General uh, Livingston, uh, uh, James Livingston, who has a Medal of Honor from Vietnam, come out and talk about this. And he said, there's a lot of Southerners that have bled and died for that Medal of Honor, and uh, we need to recognize that. I mean, he was very proud of the fact that he's from Georgia and uh, that you know Southerners were doing their, their part in all of these military campaigns. Maybe not so much anymore because of the woke agenda. And I think a lot of people, a lot of uh, military families are telling their sons, don't get involved in this thing anymore. It's not worth it. You're being told you have to go on welfare while we're giving billions of dollars to Ukraine or we're spending billions of dollars on green energy. Also, people can make fun of you. Why sign up to do it? I don't think it's just Confederate monuments, but I think it's the entire political climate of the American empire. Similarly, some of the tanks that freed prisoners from German concentration camps also flew the Confederate flag. After decades of hostility from academia, politicians and the media joined the attack on Southern traditions after a lone gunman killed nine worshippers at a black church in Charleston, South Carolina, seven years ago. At that time, most Americans considered Confederate monuments to be symbols of regional pride, not celebrations of racism. And that's still the case for a percentage of the population, as we'll talk about at the end of the week in a hit piece from the Atlantic, which is just absolutely ridiculous. A 2017 survey of subscribers to the Hallowed Ground magazine of the American Battlefield Trust revealed that 97% wanted Confederate statues to remain on national battlefield parks, and 85% wanted them to remain at other locations. Now, this is 2017, so we're five years later. That, that number might be slightly different after George Floyd, the summer of love, quote-unquote, for George Floyd. But regardless, you still have, I would say, the majority of Americans believing this. And uh, that doesn't matter. I mean, when you talk about uh, the, the monument there at Gettysburg for Lee and the Virginians, now you've got dope saying we have to interpret that, which is in violation of the charge, right? So, but most people would say, well, that should be there, right? I mean, that's, it's on a battlefield. It's in a cemetery, and some southern locations, if they're not overrun with a bunch of Yankee do-gooders, are resisting the call to take down monuments. It's just not going to happen. Over 90% endorsed a statement that Robert E. Lee is worthy of respect today, whereas only 9% endorsed a statement that Lee is unworthy of respect in society today. This is 2017, right? It is after Dylan Roof. It is probably before Charlottesville. I don't know when it was taken, the time period. And then, of course, it was before George Floyd. Again, the media got into overdrive in those last five years in trying to destroy anything doing to do with the South because it's dissident. And you're just an evil racist redneck if you like Confederate symbols and monuments. Significantly, two-thirds of the respondents were descended from Union soldiers. Only 22% were from the former Confederate states. So most of these people are in the North, not the South, that are responding to this. You would think it would be the other way around, but it's not, according to the American Battlefield Trust. 
this is this is a big deal. But again, this survey is five years old. I'd like to see a new survey to see what effect all of the media hype over these things has done to change the perception of monuments and symbols, Confederate monuments and symbols. When then-Governor Nikki Haley removed the Confederate battle flag from the Capitol grounds at Columbia, South Carolina, after the Dillon Roof shootings, she opened the floodgates for a wave of attacks on traditional values, not merely Confederate iconography. Or iconography, excuse me. Only seven years later, the political left is reframing history with silly notions such as putting America's founding at 1619 instead of 1776 because the first black slaves arrived in Virginia in 1619. Now, what's interesting about that is Nicole Hannah-Jones has said, I didn't say that, but of course there are screenshots of the website saying this is the real founding, which is just stupid. But this is what they do, right? Now, I have said before that there are some things that the 1619 Project, if you believe the proposition nation gets right, which, of course, I've argued against extensively. Similarly, the founders such as George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and James Madison are condemned because they were slaveholders. So-called progressive notions such as diversity, equity, and inclusion demand equality of outcomes collectively as opposed to equality of opportunity individually. Now, that word equity is the key word. It's a loaded word, right? And so we need to be careful about that. Uh, as I... Uh, as I'll talk about this week, tomorrow, in fact, with a piece by Jeff Deist, that word equity is the key to the future because you cannot have a vibrant society with equity. It will never work. It will never exist. But you can have a society where you have a power-hungry elite dictating to everyone else and punishing people. We've seen it. It's called the Soviet Union. But even that society didn't believe in equity for those who were in the party. Right. There's no equitable society. They're always going to be a power group, a power elite, and they will abuse the rest. More so in a society that preaches equity than any other, because there's no opportunity for advancement. And so, I mean, you know, this is the thing where on education, it's the idea that you have a bunch of kids standing at a fence and it's equality because, well, they all have access to the fence to see the ball game behind it. But equity means that some of the kids that are shorter get a box to stand on so everybody can see the game. That's how it's very benign. Well, look at this. We just want people to see the game. No, no, no. You want equality of outcome. You want all those kids to get A's, right? And so if you do these things, you give them a box. Well, what is the box? What's in the box? Is it uh, a grade? Is it special treatment? Is, what is it? Why does the kid that's at the end not get anything? Because he already can see. Right, He already has the background to do better. Doesn't mean he's going to. So this is the thing. Right? This, is what we're, this is what we're up against in the future moving forward. Critical race theory and its so-called anti-racist remedies demand a new form of racism that is anti-white this time. So-called gender preference and pronoun selection is confused with gender dysphoria and mental illness. All this has been imported into the military. This is entirely true. I mean, you look at the military as the piece, the first piece I talked about brings this up. I mean, you have this major problem in the military. Ty Sigerly is an example of it. The military is usually where these things are able to be uh, tested and fermented because the government has complete control over the indoctrination process. 
And so it's beginning there. Finally, Congress authorized a commission to remove or sanitize all Confederate memorials, including Army base names and even street names. Long-standing symbols at West Point are slated to be among the casualties. Because you know why? Supposedly they had KKK uh, meanings, which of course, this is a stretch. But regardless, um, the fact is, this was Ty Sajali's commission. This is what he wanted to do. And uh, he pulled it off. And you know who's behind it? Your Republican legislators. They all, most of them voted for it because they don't really care about this. They don't really care about the culture war because they say, you know, all these Confederates are Democrats because they only look at things in that way, right? This is Democrats against Republicans. If there remains any doubt that such hostility and reducing interest in the military academies, consider the num- that the number of white freshmen, known as rats, at the Virginia Military Institute dropped by about 30% this year. While VMI tried to attribute the drop to other factors, it may be noted that the Citadel in South Carolina had no such drop. It is VMI that is on a mission to destroy their meritocracy on the altar of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Critical race theory and censorship of dissenting voices, including those at the cadet student newspaper. If the military wants to meet its recruitment goals, it might try transforming itself back into an organization that seeks leaders instead of snowflakes. I mean, a great concluding line. Uh, And get rid of this woke agenda, right? The, The military should not be promoting any of this. You want warriors. You want people that are tough. You want people that aren't going to cry because they're called a name. Or that aren't, I mean, that think that, uh, you know, a, a name on a military base is going to change the way they think about fighting a war. It's ridiculous. But this is where we are in the 21st century. And I think Lee makes, I think you, you could say there's there's definitely a correlation between these things. The, the, the name changes and removing the monuments and everything. Of course, you know, the Arlington Monument, as we talked about earlier on this, on this episode, uh, this is all part and parcel of, of the process by which the United States military is going to be uh, going to be wokeified, right? And the idea is, well, we're including more people, but the people they're getting rid of have historically been the people that did most of the heavy lifting in the military. What are you going to be left with? Not something, you're not going to be left with much of an army or a navy. Uh, for all the things that Mike Lanton and I disagree with, he did a uh, lecture not long ago where he talked about the U.S. Navy and how incompetent it really is. I mean, and this stuff is not publicized, but ships crashing and not able to do what they're supposed to do. And uh, we know that there is incompetence at every level of the United States military. And a lot of it has to do with uh, affirmative action and people being promoted to positions they shouldn't be in because, well, we have to promote because of diversity, inclusion, and equity. Anytime you start doing that, you run it, you get rid of the idea that people should be promoted because of how well they've done and, and instead of, you know, other factors. And you see it in companies, you see, and the military is no different. You see it all throughout. So I, I like these both these pieces together. This is a big issue moving forward in the United States military, and how is this going to work? Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if recruitment's going to come back. I don't know if white Southerners or Southerners in general will still sign up in large numbers for the military, or rural kids, right, rural white Americans, if they're going to continue to sign up for the military when they're told they're the problem in everything. I mean, when that it becomes a message that you are the enemy of everything good in America, 
How long do you think people are going to, it's going to resonate with them before they just start saying, forget it. We're just not going to participate in this and we're going to start bucking it. How long? That's the real issue. And the end of the the end of the week and the piece I talk about, that's, well, it's not that these people are racist, just they, there's a, an identity around this because they've been told by the Obama administration, Obama, they were rally around Obama because Obama was, was the guy that they, they all opposed. Well, how much do you think of that is that they're told that they're the enemy all the time? And they're tired of being the enemy. And so um, that's, that's, I think, a real tangible thing in America that the left didn't count on. There will be some of that going on. All right. So, two good pieces. Get Phil Lee's book on Reconstruction. He's also got another number of other books at Shotwell Press. Just go out and look for Phil Lee, L-E-I-G-H. It's L-E-I-G-H. Phil Lee on Amazon. A number of his books are out there. Go pick them up. And I'll see you tomorrow on the Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. <laughs>